0: Good morning, Christ Central Church. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's an honor and privilege to be with you to bring God's Word to you, God's people. Uh, We are continuing in our sermon series in Exodus. This week we're in chapter 16, uh, a story that may be familiar to some of you. hopefully it will be fresh and insightful for you this morning. I'm going to ask that you would stand uh, as is our custom at Christ Central and uh, as mentioned in the early service we don't do this just to get the blood pumping and wake you back up. We stand because we believe this word is true and authoritative and that God has called us to submit to that authority so we have a really high view of God's Word, and this is a a way to be reminded of that each and every week. I'm going to be reading uh, Exodus 16. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7, and then skip over and read 22 to 30. This is God's Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out. You're grumbling against the Lord. In verse 22. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning so they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it Moses said eat it today for today is a sabbath to the lord today you will not find it in the field six days you will gather it but on the seventh day which is a sabbath there will be none however on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather But they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but his word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. God, we pray that you would speak to us afresh through your word this morning. That would, you would bring your truth to us, your people, that we might be transformed by encountering you, the living God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I recently read about a study conducted in the UK a few years ago on the sleep patterns of small children. And as a parent of four small children... I can't think of a survey, a study that is more relevant to my day-to-day life. I was so eager to hear what they might have discovered. What the research revealed is that kids learn to rest much in the same way they learn to walk, run, and talk. That rest takes practice. They learned that a child requires a ritual and a routine to learn to fall asleep, that infants learn by habit over time how to cease fighting sleepiness. Things like a regular bedtime, dim lights, bath time, book time, rocking, all allow their brains to carve out a pattern, a biochemical path, if you will, to rest. Now I could have saved these researchers a lot of time and money on this one because I have been devoted to these routines and rituals for the past six years of my life. Shushing and rocking and bouncing and driving kids around the block in their car seat. I've, you know, we've done it all. It consumes you. You're so desperately longing for these beautiful little children to go to sleep (laughs) but all joking aside for those of you who are not parents there's something from the study that is important for all of us to hear and what the study also determined is that if rest is learned through habit and repetition then so is restlessness That to become a restless, weary person is to unlearn that which we learned so well as a child. And the truth is, we are a restless people. Amen? As a culture, we have forgotten how to rest. Research shows that Americans are second only to the Japanese in how many days and hours we work in a calendar year that is not something to be proud of. No doubt we live in a culture that embraces this fully, but why? Why is it assumed in our society that our lives have to be filled to the brim with activity, that we have to run 90 miles, miles an hour all day long, each and every day? We definitely can credit the culture with this obsession with work, with productivity, and with endless entertainment, and it would be very easy to simply blame this one on the world we live in, to chalk it up to the rat race that we have been born into and have no control over. And yet our text this morning seems to argue something different. It seems to argue that to be restless may, in fact, be far more spiritual than it is cultural. That our problem with restlessness may be rooted in a lack of trust rather than our job requirements or our school workload or endless parenting duties, or you fill in the blank. Our text this morning is about Sabbath, and the more I've studied the more I'm convinced that our restlessness is intricately tied to this centuries-old idea of Sabbath, and even more so its glaring absence in our lives. Now, I need to confess here that I oftentimes preach from a place of personal experience. I love when I can share with you how I'm presently tasting and enjoying the riches of God's word this morning that is not the case if I'm honest I'm tired I'm restless and I truly believe that I am that way because I have not applied this truth well to my life but the good news for you is that this truth is no less true because I the preacher am ignoring it That God's word is always true regardless of whether I seek to walk in it or not. All that to say, I need to hear this as much as you. And I'm hoping that God, through the preaching of his word, will this morning convict you and I in such a way that we might trust him more and in turn walk in obedience. I have three points this morning as we seek to unpack our restlessness in light of sabbath first the sabbath is a test second the sabbath is a gift and third the sabbath is a sign a test a gift and a sign so let's begin sabbath is a test our text begins with something that we should be very familiar with at this point in our journey through the book of exodus god's people are grumbling again this time because they are hungry. And verse 4 says that God responds to their grumbling, and he says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this particular story, what's happening here is that in response to the people's grumbling, God is about to miraculously provide food for his people. Not once, but every single day for the entire 40 years that God's people spend wandering in the wilderness. And the way that God is going to do this is that every single night, while God's people sleep, He works. He covers the ground with this dew-like substance. And apparently, this dew-like substance can be used to make bread and cakes and such. And somehow, this dewy stuff provides more than enough sustenance for God's people to live off of and be nourished by each and every day. So this is what God does for His people in response to their grumblings, but what I want to draw your attention to this morning is the reason why God does this. No doubt, one of the reasons why He does this is to prevent His people from starving, but Verse 4 gives us yet another motivation. God says he's going to provide a day's portion of food each and every day that I may test them. So somehow inherent in this miraculous provision, there is a test. Now I recognize that a number of you are in school right now and you hear the word test and you immediately become a little queasy. And you begin to ask the question, what kind of tests are we talking about? Is it pass-fail? Will there be a curve? Do you have a study guide? And on and on. We can rest assured it's not that kind of test. And I think it's really important that we understand exactly what God is getting at here when He says that He's going to test God's people. And the way I want to get at that is by first telling you what God does not mean when he says he is going to test them. And what he does not mean is that he is not trying to test his people to see whether they are in fact worthy of his blessing, of his protection, of his provision. That's not the test that we're seeing here. And the reason we know this to be true is because the message that has been loud and clear from the beginning of this book is that God is choosing to redeem Israel from Egypt for no other reason than His own fidelity to the promises that He has made. The promises He made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now to Moses. God is faithful to, to his promises. If he was looking for a people who was worthy of deliverance, he would have bailed on Israel a long time ago. Because as we've seen time and time again, Israel's unfaithfulness seems to know no bounds. Kind of like you and me. But God's redemption is rooted in a promise, not in performance. Amen? so important. His redemption is rooted in a promise, not in performance. And that has not changed. So this test in Exodus 16 is clearly not God revisiting this idea. Is Israel, in fact, worthy? But if not that kind of test, then what kind of test is it? There's a verse a few chapters over in Exodus In chapter 20, that I think gives us insight into what God's talking about here. In Exodus 20, immediately after God has given the Ten Commandments to His people, which we'll discuss in a few weeks, verse 18 says that God shows up in flashes of lightning, the sound of trumpets and smoke billowing out from Mount Sinai. What an awesome and terrifying display. And it says, verse 19, that God's people were afraid. And so verse 20, Moses recognizes the people's fear, and he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. And then he says that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. Such an important piece of Scripture for us as Christians who are seeking to live in line with God's law. And the point Moses is making here, it's subtle, but it's critical that we see. Moses is saying that God's tests for his people are in fact for our sake and not his. That this test exists for our benefit and not God's. Think of physical training, PT, in the military. If you know anything about our armed forces, the men and women in armed forces train every single day and during their training they are constantly subject to various tests. Why? Well, they take these tests in order to see how well they're doing in the various skills needed for combat, see where they can improve, what areas are they weak in, what areas can they grow in, and they take these tests ultimately to ensure that they will succeed when the real battle comes. The tests are for their good, so that they will in fact succeed. I think this is exactly what God is getting at here. God orchestrates these tests for his people so they can see how well they're doing, to see how they can improve, knowing that through the passing and failing of these tests that God's people will grow. And ultimately the end goal being that they can succeed in this battle that we call life. The tests are for us. So now now understanding that, let's go back to chapter 16 and seek to apply this to our text. Verse 4 again says, God's going to rain down bread from heaven and the people go out and gather a day's portion that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God wants to use this experience as a way for Israel to see how well they are doing at walking in obedience to his law. So verse 5, God's going to provide this double portion of food on the sixth day and then none at all on the seventh. And he gives clear instructions on how to navigate this supply chain interruption. And it's so important here, brothers and sisters, that we understand what is at stake in this passage. It's so much more than Sunday lunch, right? The test is not about food, but about trust. The test exists for God's people to evaluate themselves on how much they trust God. And this Sabbath keeping is the perfect test for this because it requires God's people to, first of all, lay aside common sense, that which is practical. It makes absolutely no sense for them to go out on the sixth day and gather double and then lay aside and gather none on the 7th, because they have already experienced how that does not work. Each day they've gone out and they've gathered what they needed, and they've learned that if you keep extra, it gets nasty. This stuff expires in a hurry. You're not supposed to keep it. God provides for you. So each day they go out and gather, and then God's asking them to lay aside everything they know to be true, the experience they've had, and to then gather double and to keep it, and then don't go back out on the 7th day. It's crazy. But God is saying, Israel, you need to lay aside what you know to be true and do what I am telling you to do. You have to trust me. So the test is on, and each and every Israelite now has to decide whether they're going to trust God and do what makes no sense at all, counter, contrary to their own intellect and, wi- and wisdom, and, and head out. And not head out, excuse me, on the seventh day as usual. And what the text says is that some of Israel trusted God. In spite of how crazy it was, they gathered a double portion on the sixth day and they woke up the next morning and there were no worms, no bugs. It was not gone bad. And would you look at that? The ground was bare. Exactly what God said would happen had happened. But others did not trust God, the text says. They did not gather a double portion, and they went out on the Sabbath, and the ground was dry. And I imagine then you have to do the walk of shame over to the neighbor's house and say, Hey, can I get some bread? I didn't listen. But do you see why this is so important? It's such a critical test. God's people. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That is so huge for us to understand what Tozer's getting at. Some of the Israelites, when they thought about God, what came to their mind was trustworthy, kind, benevolent, powerful, promise keeper. And so what did they do? They trusted him. And they gathered a double portion and stayed in on the seventh day. They abandoned sound reasoning and waited for a miracle. But others, clearly in Israel, when they thought about God, had other thoughts. They still weren't quite sure if God could be trusted. And what we see here is their perception of God, what they thought about who God was, was what directed their behavior. All right, so enough Israel. What in the world does this have to do with you and I? The text argues that the Sabbath is a test, a test of whether or not we trust God. I want you to think about your own lives, your own crazy schedule, your busy work week. We've already acknowledged that all of us have too much to do and not enough time to do it, and yet the God of the universe who is fully aware of our busy schedule, is asking us to cut out an entire day of work. To seek to somehow get it all done in six days instead of seven. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, in order for this to happen for us, it would require a miracle. This is God's miraculous provision. God would either have to increase our productivity in our one less day of work, or he would have to convince us that we will be okay with a little bit less productivity in our life. That we really will have enough bread if we gather only six days instead of seven. And I think that latter miracle is more what we need to wrap our minds around in our current Western context. Because it's so hard to believe that in a culture that tells us we need more, more, more. We need more square feet in our houses. We need more shoes in our closet. We need more horsepower in our cars and more zeros in our 401k. We need more. And yet what God is boldly declaring in the Sabbath is that you in fact have enough and your six days of harvesting. You're going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. And the question for you and me is, do we trust that God is right on this one? Sure, we trust God for our salvation, right? He got that one. But do we trust Him enough to allow Him to very specifically order our lives? I want you to chew on that for a bit. My second and much shorter point is not only is the Sabbath a test, but it's also a gift. There are certainly times throughout Scripture where God asks His people to do illogical and nonsensical things for the sole purpose of testing them. Examples would be when God asked Gideon to shrink his army, or Jesus. Uh, ask the disciples to cast their nets again, even though they haven't caught any fish all day. It doesn't make any sense. And God is just proving his power. But the Sabbath is not one of those. It's not merely a test. It's also a gift. Look again at our text, verse 28. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. He gave it to you as a gift. True confession, I am far more fun to be around when I'm well rested. I am less temperamental. I'm more patient. I'm funnier. I'm more thoughtful. I'm better looking. Rest is a really good thing. We know this to be true. There's this article that was published years ago in the United Airlines in-flight magazine of all places by this lady who is seeking to cultivate rest in her life. And I think we need to hear this. She wrote, Not so long ago I was just another harried working mom rushing through the day with one thought always in my mind. Why isn't there enough time? And the article goes on to say that the way she ended up finding time was by, of all things, enjoying a weekly day of rest. And this is her commentary on how that happened now if someone told you that there was a way to stop the onslaught of everyday obligations improve your social life keep the house clean revive your tired marriage elevate spiritual awareness and improve productivity at work all overnight and without cost you'd probably say the claim was absurd and i certainly did but I was willing to see if some cosmic miracle cure might really work, and after a year of earnest research, I've discovered that adherence to a Sabbath yields a precious gift of time. My, professional, my personal life, my professional life, and my family life have all improved, and I plan to go on celebrating the Sabbath. What's most fascinating about this article is that it appears the woman who wrote it is not a Christian. And yet, nonetheless, she experienced the rich benefits of Sabbath observance. She leaned into this thing that God has offered to us, and she trusted that it might in fact be a blessing, and it proved to be so in her life. It's got to be so frustrating for God that he has to constantly command us to enjoy his good gifts. Nobody ever has to command me to go play golf, or to eat at Nana's, or to read a good book. I do these things because I have no doubt that they will be a blessing to me. The Sabbath is one of God's good gifts to us. To observe it is a guaranteed blessing. And yet we ignore it time and time again. Anyone here not like receiving gifts? Like, please don't buy me anything. That's not true of anyone. Especially we love those gifts that come from someone who really knows you, knows what you like and knows what you need. Those are the best gifts, right? Brothers and sisters, the Sabbath is a gift from God who knows us better than anyone because he created us. He created us to need rest. I think that's what's so hard about Sabbath is we have to lean into our neediness, our limits that God created for us. And so He created us with this need and also this ability to delight in and enjoy this gift of rest. We need to start listening to Him and enjoying Him this gift last but not least we need to recognize that sabbath is a sign the scriptures allude to the fact that our physical rest that we embrace one day a week is meant to be a foretaste of the spiritual rest that we will one day experience for all eternity our call to worship this morning that Aisha read comes from Matthew 11 where Jesus is calling out to us who are exhausted And he reveals that in him we will find true rest. And that same promise is later echoed in Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his in creation. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. A few weeks ago, the official trailer for the new Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, was released. And for the Star Wars fans amongst us, this was an exciting moment. I imagine some of you have watched the trailer, maybe even multiple times, looking for some sort of clue or hint as to what is to come. Or maybe you just simply watch the trailer so you can see Luke's face again or hear the iconic Star Wars music. If you like Star Wars, this was a big deal. But how absurd, absolutely absurd would it be if you decided that this year you're just going to save a few bucks and you're only going to watch the trailer. You're never going to actually watch the movie, you're just going to enjoy the trailer time and time again. It would be absurd, it would be outrageous because the trailer has always existed to point you to something else. It's to entice you towards the real thing. The Sabbath exists much in the same way. It's a foretaste. It's a glorious foretaste, no doubt, but it's not the end in and of itself. But rather, it's something that's meant to stir us up to an even deeper longing for the eternal rest that is to come. That's what we experience here each and every week. It's a sign that points us to this promised rest that Jesus has secured for us. I want to conclude with a little bit of practical application. There's a lot of debate on what it means to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, and I'm actually not going to dive into the depths of that, theological debate, but rather I want to first point you to two resources, uh, and then I want to finish with what the scripture is crystal clear on in terms of Sabbath keeping. Two books that I've found uh, to be helpful. The first that I would encourage you, I'll put this on social media as well, but Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. It's not exclusively on on rest, but it has profoundly impacted my life in this area highly recommend that if you want to dig deeper. Secondly, Sabbath as Resistance. This book was recommended to me. I think it's in arri- arriving in the mail tomorrow. I'm excited I, to read it, but I've heard great things. Just two books if you want to really dig into this subject a little bit more. But beyond that, I want to leave you with the real practical, basic application here that the scriptures affirm over and over and again and that is that this command to keep sabbath is the command to cultivate both physical and spiritual rest and i just want to unpack that briefly first to cultivate physical rest to do this is very simply not to work on sunday the scriptures are clear on this that we are to lay down whatever our vocation may be we set it aside for 24 hours now understand that for some of you that's impossible If you're a doctor, police officer, EMS, pastors, I'm so grateful for those of you who are in these vocations that are required to work on Sunday. But for you, I just want to encourage you not to completely throw out this idea of Sabbath. But you must be creative and diligent to fight for Sabbath, and if that's you, I'd love to talk further with you about what that looks like. But for the rest of us, it's pretty simple, right? God calls us not to work on Sunday. I think it's more than just not getting in the car and going to the office, but it's turning off our email. It's not answering those work calls. It's just if you're a student, you put those books away. And importantly, if we are parents, it's for us to cultivate this Sabbath environment for our kids. The scriptures are clear that the family rests together. We are called to a physical rest from work. It's a gift it's not just physical that we're after it's also spiritual and the way we do this is hebrews 10 by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near what the scriptures make plain is that to cultivate spiritual rest is to commit to regularly be a part of sunday worship We stop our physical work, and we come to find our spiritual rest in God, in His body, on His day, in His house. We come here, and He meets us here, and we lay it all down, and we experience His rest. If I were to venture a guess, I would say that the average member of Christ Central Church probably attends... 40 out of 52 Sundays at Christ Central in a given year. And I'm not here to be your conscience. Thankfully, that's not my job. But I just want to encourage you to examine your life and examine that level of Sabbath keeping and ask yourself, does that truly reflect a trust in God, a belief that to keep the Sabbath is a sweet gift from the Lord? A belief that enjoying the Sabbath is the closest we get to the eternal rest that is to come. I know I'm not going to convert you this morning, but I just charge you to seek to look at the Sabbath with fresh eyes, starting today, and see if God doesn't grow in you a new love and longing for this day of rest. And maybe, this may sound crazy, but maybe... As Durham watches us, they might begin to talk about how Christ Central Church is full of the most rested people in town. And they might come looking for that rest. I want to leave you with some words from author and theologian Tish Warren. Uh, She shares about how she stumbled into a whole new perspective on Sabbath and how her life has never been the same. So I want to give you this. She was talking we as she and her husband. She said, we stumbled into a small, stone-walled Anglican church one Sunday. I felt too tired and weak to work myself up, my heart or my head, to any emotional climax or intellectual achievement. So I sat in church and followed the script and said my lines. The words of the liturgy felt like a mother rocking me singing over me, speaking words of blessing again and again. I was relaxing into church like an overtired child collapsing on her mom. When my husband and I would get into the car after church each week and talk about the service, I would say to him, it feels like chamomile tea. What a beautiful picture of what church is supposed to look and feel like. Chamomile tea, a place of rest where our hearts and minds are put at ease in the presence of our loving Heavenly Father as He reminds us over and over again that His promises to us are forever, yes and amen. I hope and pray that Sundays become ever increasingly chamomile tea for you until Christ returns to host a tea time that will never end. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I confess that so often my life is so consumed with to-do lists and getting things done and performing and checking off boxes that I bring that into this place. And I come in here to perform for you and for others and I've lost sight of why I'm here. I've lost sight of the fact that Jesus Christ has accomplished it and he sat down because it is finished and he is seated right now right next to you God and we come here to reap the benefits of what he has done and we can lay it all down God, I pray that you would cause this place to be a place of rest for our weary souls that we could sit here and be reminded each week of how good and faithful you are. I pray that for myself, and I pray that for each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.